So this afternoon we're going to study Luke chapter 4 verses 5 to 8. Luke chapter 4 verses 5 to 8, which is in the Gospel of Luke, the second temptation in the culminating temptations of the time of testing in the desert. Before we read from Luke chapter 4, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we now study your word, the Holy Scriptures, I pray, Father, that I would be given wisdom from above to speak according to your wisdom, to speak according to your will. I pray, Father, that I would not speak according to the foolishness of men nor the doctrine of devils. Father in heaven, may we all be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are obedient. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're we're studying verses 5 to 8. We'll just read from the beginning of Luke chapter 4 down to um, chapter 4, verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So we continue to study this time of temptation and we're slowly looking at what you would call the ultimate temptations of a 40-day period of temptation. This is where our Lord took authority over Satan. Remembering that back in the book of Genesis, God gave to the man dominion over all the creatures of the earth, everything that walked upon the earth. God gave the man dominion over those creatures. And let's just look quickly. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That phrase, beast of the field, that's the exact phrase that is used when God describes the dominion that he gave to the man. The man was to rule over and have dominion over every beast of the field. And now the serpent is being called a creation of God. It's being called a beast of the field. There's clear implication there. What's the implication? The implication is that in this testing, which is happening in Genesis chapter 3, the man should have exercised the dominion that he had been given. Now, this was a genuine test. The serpent was none other than Satan, we're told in the book of Revelation. You know that we can argue all kinds of fine details. Was it a typical serpent like every other serpent they may or may not ever have seen? In the end, I almost don't know. I really don't. But we do know that to the woman, it appeared to be a serpent and it was a talking serpent. It was a beast of the field over which the man was to take dominion. In other words, he should have told it, shut up. 
you just said things that are against what the Lord God has said. Shut up. Get out of here. Stop talking to the woman that God gave me. He should have exercised his dominion and he failed and he fell and he sinned the sin of eating the tree, the fruit of the tree, which was forbidden to him. He he ceased to be at that moment a servant of the living God. I say he became later again a servant of God through salvation for God slaughtered animals and clothed them. And, I, and, and, you know, we've been teaching through the book of Genesis and remember right back to those earlier sermons in the book of Genesis, God clothing someone, God hiding someone's nakedness, I take it to mean that God did save them. But he may have saved them, but the order that the man had established on the earth, the, the misuse of the dominion that God had given him, that misuse of that dominion, that stood. The man had abandoned his rightful place and his rightful authority. It had been taken by the serpent and that authority that was now being wielded by the serpent is still being wielded by the serpent when Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tested. In the first major temptation... If let, let's just sort of recap it. It was basically to deny your role as a man, the last Adam, your humanity, your the humiliation of your ministry, the requirement that you will be the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. It was to deny that, to deny that by choosing rather than being hungry because God had said be hungry, choosing to try and take the control of providence into his own hands turning a stone into a loaf of bread in order to eat. Jesus refused it, and he refused it using scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And we looked at the passage in the book of Deuteronomy where that came from and saw how um, in that passage Moses told the people of Israel that they had been taken into the wilderness and fed manna for the purpose of humbling and testing them. So Jesus is not only... The last Adam, he is the true Israel, the true son of God. We come to this second temptation. And and once again, there is a great temptation here to step away from that which God has planned. But the very first thought that runs through my mind as we read verse five is just how powerful is this one called here the devil and what can he do? Well, the scripture doesn't explicitly tell us where the devil and his servants came from. You just sort of you piece together little bits and pieces of things that you that you find in other places, for example, in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Isaiah and and um, in the book of Job. And you sort of get a picture of one who was created a holy archangel and was a very powerful holy archangel with much authority who in pride chose to rebel against God. And in that rebellion, other angels followed him. And it seems in the book of Revelation, there's a reference to a third of the stars going dark. And one of the ways you can read that third of the stars going dark is that the devil himself somehow or other managed to lead a third of the angels into rebellion. 
And so what we have is an angelic being who has fallen through pride. I I personally, and, you know, I'll, I'll give you just a little bit more, and this little bit more that I give you, it's very hard to find anything explicit in Scripture that supports what I'm saying. But it would appear to me that Satan was created to be the angel who had angelic dominion over the earth and that it was God's purpose that that created angel now called Satan was supposed to work in partnership with and in obedience to the man who bore the image of God that God had created. He was supposed to be, if you want to think of it this way, his right-hand spirit, his, his personal empowering angel, and that the devil himself rebelled against that role of serving and turning authority over to the man. That's what I think happened. But as I said, you know, take that from that little part where I said I'm inserting my own thoughts to that part there where I've, you know, I've, I've just finished the, the sentence. If you ask me to prove that from Scripture, my answer is I cannot prove that from Scripture. And I don't claim to be able to prove that from Scripture. That seems to me to be the way that God set up his creation. And so we have an angel, a very powerful angel, who ought to be exercising dominion and authority on behalf of God in obedience to the man who bears the image of God, and that angel has been rebelled. I mean, has been rebellious, has rebelled. How powerful is he? Well, once again, my answer to that would be this, that angels are spiritual beings who can do things in the power of God. They can do things in the power of God according to the power that God gives them at any given time. And so the very fact, now we read here that the devil does something which is in some way, it's supernatural. I won't use the word miraculous because that's sort of, in, that comes with it the implication. What comes with that is the implication of a sign ministry. He does something here that is in some way supernatural. The devil took him, took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. You know, this is, who can do this? Well, your answer can only be, well, God can do this. Okay, well then, how can this spirit being called the devil do this? The only answer you can possibly give is the devil can do this because God has permitted him to be able to do this at this moment for this purpose. So how powerful is the devil? He's as powerful as God allows him to be in any given circumstance for any particular purpose. So for people like you and I, should we say silly and boastful things concerning the devil? And my answer to that is no, we should not. We, we should not be saying silly and boastful things and talking about how we will be victorious over Satan and all of that stuff. Only what the scripture says. The scripture says that the Lord Jesus will place his head under our feet in the book of Romans. The Lord Jesus will do it through the power of the archangel Michael in the book of Revelation. He will be placed under our feet. We are on the victor's side. Our Lord has bound the strong man. Our Lord has defeated Satan. But I haven't, I haven't done it. You haven't done it. None of us have done it. Let's, let's not be foolish. If I, I honestly, it is my honest belief that when Christians start saying stupid things on this subject, 
making boastful claims and looking for battles and looking for fights, they get more than they bargain for because God doesn't want proud servants. God wants humble servants. You know, to, to any young man, I say, you know, you're young, you're strong, you're healthy, you feel like you can take on all the world. Believe you me, if you start looking for battles and you want to take on all the world, you'll get more than you ever counted for. We as Christians, we fight only the battles God puts in front of us, remembering that the Lord Jesus fought this battle on our behalf. This is our battle being fought here by one who is powerful enough and strong enough and pure enough to win the battle. So he's that powerful. He's that powerful. On my own, of myself, I don't want to meet him. I I don't want to be near him. I don't want anything to do with him. He is that powerful. I don't want any battle other than that which God brings my way in his providence. I don't imagine for a moment that I'm actually an important enough person that the devil himself would pay me any attention. Though I have no doubt that we who are servants of the living God, there are fallen angels who serve the devil, who hate us and who are around about us and actively would like to resist us and harm us. I have no doubt of that whatsoever. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil was able to give Jesus a vision. He was enabled, allowed, permitted to give Jesus a vision. All the kingdoms of the world. Now, that's not just all the kingdoms of the globe at that moment. All the kingdoms of the world. From the fall through to the end, all all the man-made power structures, all the kingdoms of the world, all the power and the authority and the glory of all of those kingdoms in a moment of time. And now the devil speaks, knowing that he has shown such things to Jesus. And said to him, verse 6, To you I will give all this authority and their power, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Okay, let's look at that particular verse. Notice he says, For it has been delivered to me. Who made the delivery? Who gave it over? Who handed it to him? The first Adam. The first covenant head the man at the head of humanity, originally created in the image of God. Who delivered it to me? Or, I'm sorry, for who delivered it to Satan? The first Adam. Adam knows. I mean, Satan knows what's going on here. He understands. This this whole passage is filled with references to biblical history where if we study the Bible close enough, We get more from this than just a 40-second story. Well, Jesus is good. Jesus quoted scripture. Therefore, the devil couldn't beat him. Now, Jesus is good. Jesus quoted scripture and the devil couldn't beat him. You know, that's not wrong. But it's deeper than that. There's much more depth to it than that. It has been delivered to me. The first Adam, he bent the knee. Now, he might not literally have bent the knee when he ate the fruit, but... 
in spiritual terms, he took instruction from me. He took those instructions from me. They came to him through his wife. He listened to his wife rather than to God. And he delivered to me the dominion that he was given. I have his dominion. I have his authority. This is boastful. It's based in in scriptural history. To you, I will give all this authority and their glory. Jesus did, after all, the eternally begotten Son of God did, after all, come into the world to actually take possession of that world. He has taken possession of the kingdoms of the earth. Let's just have a look at a few passages of Scripture. Turn to Psalm 2. Now, we know from the way Psalm 2 is handled in, um, in the Bible that Psalm 2 is a psalm of the Lord's Messiah. It's a psalm about the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll read from the top. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the psalm starts off with a description of the nations, the peoples, the kings of the earth, and the rulers. They plot. They're under the devil's authority. They're under the devil's power. Their power comes from the devil, and they give their authority to the service of the devil. Let us burst the bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords. God sends his son, his son. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. From whom is the son supposed to receive his authority? From whom is the son supposed to receive his power? Ask of me, says God. Satan here in this temptation is setting himself up in the place of God. Satan wants to be worshipped. He wants people to think that he is God. He wants people to fear him. He sets himself up in the place of God. To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. But God said, Ask of me. The Father said to the Son, I will give you the nations. You will get them from me. I will give you the nations. Notice Satan usurping. As I said, trying to set himself in the place of God, trying to be the ruler that he is not. It is also my belief that this was kind of a gamble. This is a half-truth a half gamble. Why? 
because this authority that has been delivered to Satan originally came from God. In other words, it came from God, the eternally begotten Son of God, just as much as it came from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So let's tease it out a little bit. Does Satan have power over the kingdoms of the world in in their godlessness, in their man-centeredness? And the answer is yes, he does. Why does he have that power? The answer is God has given him that power because the man fell into sin and and surrendered the dominion that God had given to the man. He surrendered it to Satan and God has left it there until now, or when I say now, until this time of temptation where Jesus starts to fight for that dominion to come back to a son of man, the one who will crush the serpent's head. For Satan to have been truly able to usurp the place of God and give, truly give these kingdoms to Jesus. Jesus, in terms of Jesus, the eternally begotten son, had to give Satan the power to do it. So this is, in a way, it's a lying temptation based on half-truths. It's also a very daring temptation and... Were it successful, it would have destroyed the unity of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, in perfect fellowship, perfect love, perfect unity with one purpose. It would have destroyed the very unity of the Holy Trinity. But Jesus is indeed being tempted in his humanity. And Jesus, as a man, always understand this, is Jesus is being tempted as a man based on his understanding of Scripture. We know he knew Psalm 2. We know that the kingdoms were indeed promised to him. God has said, you are my beloved son, in you you I am well pleased. Psalm 2 says that God will give to his beloved son whom he has placed on Zion, his holy hill. He will give to him the nations of the world. And so part of the temptation, at least, is this is an easier way. You know Psalm 2. You know you're going to get the kingdoms of the world. I can give you the kingdoms of the world. I don't demand that you go to the cross. I don't demand that you submit yourself to a Roman court, that you submit yourself to flogging and being spat upon and insulted. I make no such demand. You don't have to die of exposure, drowning in your own bodily fluids. I make no such demand. I will give you all of this authority and its glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it To whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, let's just think of another little point here. We're going to go to another psalm in a moment. If Satan delivered the power of the world over to Jesus, how would he achieve that end what sort of things would he do what is his character what is his nature he himself is a slave he is proud he himself is a slave of his own evil he himself enslaves and he holds people in slavery to sin 
Turn to Psalm 110. There is to be nothing impure or unholy about Jesus exercising his power over the nations. Reading Psalm 110, another psalm so often quoted in the New Testament, the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus himself, applies this psalm directly to himself. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. How are the people to become the Lord Jesus' people? Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holiness, in holy garments, not slaves to sin, not slaves to wickedness, not seeking things for themselves in holy garments. You see, there in Psalm 110, we have a picture of salvation. Let's talk about the doctrine of salvation. You know, I'm a predestinarian. You know that I could be called a Calvinist. They're labels. I, don't, I really don't care much about them. If you want to call a person like myself a Calvinist, call me a Calvinist. You know that I teach Reformation doctrines. No one is saved other than that God saves them. But God saves by changing the very desire of the heart. God grants life at the innermost being. Every person who is outside of Christ is dead in their sin. We read Ephesians chapter 2. They're serving the prince of the power of the air. They're following after their lusts and desires, their worldly lusts, their evil desires. They're slaves to their own sin. And then God gets involved. He puts his hands into the person, if you want to think of it that way. God gets involved and says, uh, this dead heart, I'm going to give them a living heart. This, this rebel, this person with nothing but evil and wicked desires and the desire to serve themselves, I'm going to give them a living heart that responds to me, that responds to my commandments, that wants to be in a right relationship with me, a believing heart. And so God saves a person and that person offers themselves freely to God. Everybody takes choices. As, as, as someone who's called a Calvinist, I do not deny that everybody takes choices. Everybody makes choices. People can only make choices according to their nature. And Scripture tells me that anyone who is outside of Christ is dead in their sins. Slaves of sin. They cannot do the things that please God, we're told in Romans chapter 8. They cannot keep the godly commandments. They cannot do these things. They can't. They're dead. They're slaves. They're haters of God. They're wicked. And that is their nature. That was my nature a little over 30 years ago now, 35 years ago. But when God changes the heart, a person can now choose according to the nature that God has given them and they can freely, and they do freely choose to follow Christ, to repent of their sins, to seek the forgiveness of their sins, to seek to obey the law of God, to have the law of God fulfilled in their lives, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in grace, to grow in faith. They offer themselves freely and in 
holy garments. They're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is what Satan could not do. Even if in all reality he could have delivered these kingdoms to Jesus, it could not be a holy offering. It could not be a holy offering. What does, what does God want with wickedness and sin? What does God want with death and destruction? What does God want with liars and rebels? You know, who wants it? You know, if, if, if someone gives you a puppy, do you want a living one that's beautiful or do you want one that died last week and stinks? I realise that's a sort of brutal comparison, but that's what we're talking about. The world is a stinking graveyard in the sight of God. It's a stinking graveyard. What does God want with a stinking graveyard? What's the value of it? This kingdom that God's son will take, this when he takes over the world, and he has taken over the world in terms of his victory over Satan here in the desert, his victory over Satan upon the cross, his victory over Satan when he was raised from the dead, his ongoing victory over Satan that he exercises at the right hand of God the Father, dashing kingdoms in pieces like a potter's vessel with his rod of iron. It's a holy victory. His people offer themselves freely, clothed in his righteousness. God does not want sin, corruption and wickedness. God wants holiness. God bestows perfect salvation. You know, in Romans we're told God is both just and the justifier. In other words, God does what is right in declaring people righteous in his sight. God is both just and the justifier. So Satan could not have delivered this kingdom in the way that God wants the kingdom. God wants his people to offer themselves freely in the day of the son's power in holy garments. He doesn't want a kingdom of slaves given over to corruption, doomed to die, who will never ever populate, if you want to put it this way, who will never ever populate the new heavens and the new earth. That's not what he wants. He wants a holy kingdom. It has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the Apostle Paul speaks of false teachers and he speaks of how they can appear to be so nice and so reassuring and how people might want to hear what they say. And at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, he says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Well, it would seem to me that at this moment, verse 7, when Satan says, if then you will worship me, it will all be yours, it would seem to me that at this moment he was appearing as an angel of light. The whole aim here is to tempt Jesus in his humanity to rebel against the will of God the Father, to appear as something corrupt and ugly, I don't think would be tempting. We're not tempted by things that appear to be revolting. We're tempted by things that appear to be beautiful and desirable. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. As I've said, I think at this moment he appeared to be an angel of light. 
every every little bit of um, um, granted glory that he could muster, that God permitted him to have at that moment, I think it was on display. Remember, as we said last week, the devil doesn't play fair. He attacks people in their weakness. Jesus answers, verse 8, And Jesus answered him, It is written. Where is it written? It's written in the scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, etc. For correction and for training in righteousness. It is written. We read Deuteronomy chapter 6 earlier. It's, it's a... Um, it's a quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 6 coming to us through, through the Septuagint, the um, ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, I think in New King James, your finger's on the page, and I think you're thinking it says, get behind me, Satan. You're dealing there with the difference between textual differences. The, um, the Textus Receptus that your King James and your New King James are, are, are translated from that appears in those in that in that set of manuscripts. Get behind me, Satan. I won't say that it does or does not belong there. I'm not any kind of expert in that field. I know the difference exists. It makes sense at that moment. Get behind me, Satan. But let's look at this. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Once again, Jesus is saying to the devil, I only want what my father gives me. I will be content with what God my father gives me. I want nothing more than what God my father gives me. The 10th commandment is you shall not covet. Well, if you're commanded not to covet, you are therefore commanded to be contented. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You are commanded to be contented. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus, using scripture, indicates that he is willing only to obey God. In his humanity, Jesus was worshipping God. Jesus was worshipping God. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Have you ever thought that the resistance of temptation is an act of worship? It is. All of our lives should be worshipful. All of our lives we often fail. We worship here in church on, the given, on, on a given day. We call it the Lord's Day. And... Um, in terms of obedience to the Sabbath, I think it's important. It's really important. People who are our neighbours should know by the way we spend our Lord's Day that we are Christians. I don't know that I'm not, I don't, I'm not going in for rules and regs concerning the Lord's Day. You know, I'm not going to tell anyone they shouldn't buy fuel on the Lord's Day or, or whatever it might be. But what I will tell anyone who asks me is if your neighbours are not Christians, do they know from what they see on a Sunday that you are? They should. We worship on the Lord's Day. But the Lord Jesus here says, you shall worship the Lord your God. I will not drop to the knee 
before you, though you at this moment appear to me as an angel of light. Though at this moment you tell me you have all the authority and the glory of the kingdoms of the world at your fingertips, though you tell me that you can give this authority and this glory to whomever you will, though you look all very fine at this very moment, I will worship the Lord my God and him only shall I serve. I will be content with his way. There's a tough one. I will be content with his way. When, when we look at, you know, we've been studying Genesis in the mornings, the downfall of Abraham along, along the way. When I say downfall, he wasn't cast off because he was saved. But he strayed. He stumbled at times. Why did he stumble? Part of it, just a simple lack of patience. I know his patience was being tested beyond, you know, what, what would be normal in many, many instances. But it was a simple failure to trust God. God had promised him a son. Oh, well, my wife hasn't gotten pregnant yet. Maybe I should have another girl. God promised him to watch over him, to keep him, to bless him, to make him the father of many nations, a blessing to all the world. And yet he goes down to Egypt, one of the kingdoms of the world, and gets scared and tells a lie. Maybe God won't protect me here. I'll put Sarah on the line. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Sometimes that means we wait. There are things we hope for, there are things we pray for, and we wait. And we wait till the Lord God gives them. We wait for answers to prayer. Sometimes that means that we don't even really understand why it is that we're suffering or why it is that we're being tested. Yet we wait in faithful obedience. We all have this feeling that God ought to understand that my prayers are important and that they ought to be answered now and that I ought to have what I want now. But God has other purposes. You know, along the way to bringing us into the heavenly, into the heavenly realm, bringing us into his presence through Jesus our Lord, he's making us in the, remaking us in the image of Jesus our Lord. He's making us more Christ-like. And so we must be worshipful. We must be contented with that which God gives us. We must be willing to wait for it to come to us. There always or there often seems to be an easy way to get what you want. But my friends, that which is gained easily in the beginning is often easily lost. You'll find a proverb to that effect in the Bible. Sometimes things take time. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So let's let's um, just sum this up. What warning should we take? The glory of the world is not for us. The glory of the world, the glory of the kingdoms of the world, it is not for us. I'm not saying that we don't live in this world. I'm not saying that we don't work. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have houses or any other thing like that. If a Christian is called to, to, to exercise dominion in the, in, the, in the field of politics, may the Lord bless them in their undertaking and strengthen them in the struggle because it's a struggle. A Christian in politics, I think, is really fighting the battle on the front line in a, in a manner of speaking. But the glory of this world is not for us. Authority that is not given to us is not for us. That which we receive, we receive from God. Let us be patient. 
Let us be faithful and obedient in the things that we are given. I'm reminded of a mother. She went to Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. She told him she felt she'd been called to to be a missionary, to go off to some far unknown place, preach the gospel to the unconverted heathen. And he asked her, are you a mother? And she said, yes. And he asked her how many children she had. And I think the answer by memory was 11. And he said, I think you've got a ministry at home. You've got what God gave you. Take authority over that which God has given you. Exercise dominion where God has given you dominion. It's very easy, isn't it, to imagine, you know, that um, we would be God's greatest servants if only God would give us more ability, more power, a wider field of exercise, that if, if only, if only uh, we could get our words, our thoughts, or perhaps you don't have these temptations and I'm the only one, our words or thoughts in front of a whole lot, of, a whole lot more people. Look, I, I, I can honestly say in, 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 the, in years gone by, I've given up on it. I really have. I'll serve God faithfully wherever he put me. I'll I'll teach to whoever he brings in front of me. And I'm going to leave it in the hands of God. That's all we can do. Do that which God has given you to do and do it as well as you can possibly do it. Go as deep into the things of God as you possibly can and let him worry about the increase. Let him worry about the size of your work or the, or the region in which you work or all of those things. Trust God entirely. Don't dream of petty glory in the eyes of the world and even in the eyes of our fellow Christians. You know, the glory of man, what does it come to in the end? Not much. And, and Christians, I mean, look, people, I get encouraging feedback. I appreciate it. Don't get me wrong, I appreciate it. But if I'm preaching for feedback... I'm going to become a very, very bad preacher and it's going to happen really quickly. We're not to seek the things of this world. We're not to seek the glory that comes from men. What was the criticism in the Gospel of John of the Pharisees? They wanted the glory that comes from man over the glory that comes from God. They wanted to do all these holy and righteous things and say all these pious words and the only reason they wanted to do them was so that everyone say, Oh, he's such a good fellow. Oh, if you know, say to their son, I wish you'd be more like so-and-so because he's such a good fellow. Look at him. It's the glory that comes from man. That is not for us. And the glory that comes from the prince of this world, it was not for the son of God. In the big picture, remember, this is Jesus resting back from the serpent the dominion that the serpent had taken from Adam. This is Jesus working, fighting, battling on our behalf in a war that you and I, we could never have won. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, once more we give you thanks and praise that you sent your only begotten Son into the world, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We give you our thanks and our praise that though we were weak, yet our Lord Jesus Christ, he is strong. And though we ourselves could not win the battle, he has gone forth and he has slain the dragon. Thank you, Father. We praise you. We pray that in our times of temptation and struggle, that we also would turn to the scripture, that we also would be upheld and made faithfully obedient to your commandments. 
Father, let us be filled with godly contentment. This is our greatest gain. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.